Welcome to Every Dimension. This podcast is created for those buying and selling design. Our aim is to explore how to demand more from design and how to deliver it, as we all need to keep growing brands when tomorrow's challenges and opportunities come in every dimension. Every Dimension is created by the Agency Path and hosted by me, a founder, Thomas Herman. Welcome to another episode of Every Dimension, Demand More from Design. This time, we are joined by John Gleason. Hello, John. Hello, Thomas. Honored to be here. Thank you. Good stuff. John is president of A Better View Strategic Consulting. He's the guy you want to talk to if you want to buy or sell design more effectively. He's been consulting for 16 years. And before that, he ended a 20-year stint at Procter & Gamble as Director of Business Partnerships across Global Design. There, he was responsible for purchasing, business leadership, and design operations for Global Design Services. He was also the Global Relationship Leader for all key design agency relationships. And to add to that, he's co-founder of the D-Event, and he's on the board of the UK's Design Business Association, meaning he's always involved in the conversation around the commercial application of design. John's professional passion is to elevate design as a strategic business competence with an emphasis on the business of design. He works with brands, particularly consumer facing corporations and with design and creative agencies. So John, you're probably the perfect guest for this podcast. But before we start properly, how about some quick fire warm-up questions, either or? Fire away. Cool. So, coffee or tea? Tea, and in particular, iced. So we we Yanks have a way of ruining things. So let's put some ice in it. No, iced tea's good. Cheese or chocolate? Uh, I lean to the sweet chocolate. Good. Are you a beer or wine man? I, I think I prefer wine. Stuff. Any particular reason? I I I got a a taste for it. We we had we were blessed to live in Geneva, Switzerland, with Procter and Gamble for a number of years, and a number of friends were wine experts. So, particularly Italian reds. Good stuff. So mountains or beach? Beach. Nice. Again, is that sort of is that sort of historic or where you prefer to be now? I, I think it it leans to my temperature preference. I, I grew up in, for, for anyone that might be familiar with the U.S., I grew up in Texas, which is known for its heat and humidity, and I lean to hot. Okay. But then the Swiss mountains were, were near you for many years. They were they were spectacular. And and I, I gained a great appreciation for skiing and sledding and 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 snowballs. Wow. Town or country? Country quiet spread out expansive space oh, cool right and I've, I've taken a stab at two cities here but i've probably got it wrong now new york or chicago i would lean of those two chicago just there there seems to be a a richness in what chicago offers although love visiting new york and also love leaving new york to come home okay yeah and cincinnati and texas i guess are in your life quite a lot as well Indeed, indeed. <laughs> uh, last but not least, are you a bright shirts man or a neutral shirts man? 
Well, for, for your listeners who, who might have had the chance to see the video, it is definitely bright shirt. Yeah, John, I've, every time I met you, you've had a great shirt on. So I thought I'd have to get that in there. So uh, yeah, the listeners can imagine you're wearing a, a brilliant lime green shirt today. So um, indeed, thanks for that. Cool. Well, let's uh, let's get into the proper questions, John. Thank you. So, yeah, we like to start with a kind of question going as far back in your, in your past as, you, as, you, as you're happy to share. It's always insightful to, to learn how sort of people started out. So if you don't mind saying, could you tell us what your very first job might be? So my first job was, uh, I would say, we could call it an entrepreneur now, but it was it was cutting and mowing grass, mowing gardens for uh, our neighbors when I was between eight and 15. Cool, cool. And it, was we, that something... wheeling, the, wheeling the mower up and down the street with a, with a can of petrol and, and cutting the neighbor's yards. And that was your kind of, was that your idea to kind of get that going and get some, get some money in your pocket? In, indeed, indeed. My, my first job with, with an employer, I was a lifeguard at a local swimming pool. So, you know, the, the tough life of being a lifeguard and sitting in the sun and swimming. Nice. And was that in Texas? Was in Texas. Great, great. So yeah, so from uh, from uh, grass cutting and lifeguarding, uh, what steps did you then take to to get to what you're doing now? So I I think Thomas the as I look back, there there was a a always a creative side to to me. I I could draw, I could sketch, I. I was pretty good at for for anyone who might be familiar with the television show MacGyver. I was I was very good at piecing, you know, un, unconnected things together to make other things. It, it ended up going to university studying engineering for one semester, and then became a business major. It landed at Procter and Gamble right out of school, so I interned at an ad agency at the time, the largest ad agency in the world, Young and Rubicam thought about advertising until I actually got a job offer from them. And it was half of the compensation that uh, Procter & Gamble was offering. So I decided to start client side, but it was on the, the left brain world of Procter & Gamble operations, supply chain. And, and I was certain that P&G would see how brilliantly creative I was. But at the, because at the time they only hired MBAs into marketing. And, and what I found was I was a, a, a bit of a, a creative anomaly in the left-brain world of supply chain and operations. And, and I, I, I like to tell the story. It perhaps might be exaggerated a bit, but each year my, my annual performance review was, was something like, John, we really wish you had followed the processes that we've established because we're really quite well known for our, our processes but if you had followed them, you, we might not have gotten the results that you were able to uncover because you saw the world differently. And, and that then led to the opportunity to join P&G's design function when they were first beginning to elevate design more strategically, the very beginning of that journey, as the person that owned the external agency relationship. So it was a purchasing or procurement primary responsibility Although the, the, the global design officer, Claudia Kochka at the time told me, this is not about cost savings. This is about trying to create a culture externally that has the best talent in the world to want to work with P&G. So that, that kind of led this, this opportunity that I, I found a way to be a bit right-brained in, in a left-brain world. And then when I landed in the right-brain world, I brought my left-brain skills 
and my business skills to that design organization to, to try to emphasize the business value of design. Fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's a kind of process of being in the right place at the right time, I guess, as that kind of that department kind of grew and, and you kind of, yeah, you kind of fitted the role and yeah, we're aimed to switch from left to right plane as, as you go through. Great. And then you spent 20 years in, in that, in that role. What led you to, to, to move on from there and, and do what you're doing now? So, so there, it was inspired by a number of things that I saw and observed in that role. So, so with the hat of, of external agency relationship owner, what I found was virtually every design firm sounded like every other design firm when they knocked on our door, the existing firms or firms that were trying to get our attention, which I found to be what I, what I still call the sad irony of this business, because these companies get paid to help clients differentiate their own brands, but they do a terrible job doing it for themselves. And understandably, they're not a paying client for themselves. There's utilization rates and all those things that are devoted primarily externally. The other observation I had was, was as P&G began to make this, this incredibly visible journey, our, our CEO was on the cover of Fast Company talking about becoming a consumer design company, not a consumer products company. We would get contacted by other corporations to ask, you know, we don't understand what you're doing with design. Could we come learn from you? And I became the coordinator of those benchmarking activities. So, so one of the things that I saw was how many large corporations did not seem to understand the idea of strategic design or, or making it a, a business competence because most of these companies saw it as a decoration station. And so armed with, with kind of the client side insight and the agency side insight, I decided to leave to go try to help more companies, more people. And, and so that, that was the birth of a better view almost 17 years ago. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and the, we mentioned in the intro that, you know, your clients are consumer facing corporations and design and creative agencies. Is it kind of a 50, 50 split or how does that kind of, um, um it, you know, it's, it, 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 it has, it has changed over time. One of the things that I learned at P&G was track and measure a whole bunch of things, some of which will have no bearing on any relevance or, or importance, but other things will, will uncover the, the opportunity to, uh, to, to, to see patterns and, and themes and, and, and things emerge. And, and what I found was for the first nine years of my business, my business flipped from one side of the industry to the other almost predictably every nine months. And what I found was when I would do client-side work, helping them elevate design and perhaps help them with their, their agency relationship strategies and rosters, the agencies that were not awarded business would often call me and say, hey, can you help me? elevate my game. And then when I'm working with agencies, they would see the opportunity to introduce me to some of their clients that perhaps were less informed with the role that design plays. So there, there was very clear attribution. Now, after the first nine years, it, it became much more random and, and repeat business kind of cycled. But I, I would say from a 
a, uh, an activity perspective, it probably is more agency because most agencies don't spend a lot of money on themselves and they tend to be short-term one-off. Can you help me with X, Y, or Z? The revenue is, is clearly skewed to the client side because their, their, their projects tend to be longer term, you know, six months, nine months, or, or repeat kind of a, 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 an advisor consultant role over time. Great, great. Well, thanks, John. Well, hopefully that's given everyone a kind of a background of, on, on on who you are and how you got here and that and, and and why you know I guess why I'm so keen to get you on this podcast and this conversation. You know, we're 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 talking to design buyers and design sellers about how to you know get more out of design and, and make design more effective. So, you know, your position on on both sides of the the relationship, you know, is 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 brilliant to get have that insight and uh, we, we've spoken a number of times before so i know i can kind of set you up uh, with a couple of questions and, and let you go so i'm gonna try and try and do that with the next section but this is the it's the part of the podcast where we normally talk about how as an agency you know we're always trying to build better experience and expression for brands to help them grow and that's always in light of challenges and opportunities you know and, and how we sort of perceive those in every dimension so yeah i kind of wanted to take this middle section and kind of understand what you see as the design business you know what the what the big challenges are and you know you're kind of I know you measure a lot of stuff and 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 research a lot of stuff so perhaps in in those terms what you see the kind of big challenges are you alluded to some of them earlier about you know the the number of agencies and and the and the lack of differentiation between them and then perhaps after that we could roll into what the opportunity is. And I, and I imagine that's to do with your passion about making design, you know, more of a strategic competence. So, um, yeah, I mean, over to you, John, if you, if you, if you're happy to take that challenge and, and, um, we'll see where we get to. Yeah. Thomas, let me, let me start with a, a macro trend that I'm seeing is d- design as a strategic practice seems to be losing its footing inside of corporations. There are a number of large corporations that have dismantled their design teams and put design in the hands of junior or mid-level marketers or their, their innovation organization. And, and can those organizations create packaging or new products or, or new innovation? Of course they can. But, but what I find is the, the pressure for large companies to, to focus on short-term results as opposed to the long-term trajectory of the purpose and, and effectiveness of a brand tend to drive the, the, the actions to be short-term. And so, so big, massive, disruptive innovation often doesn't occur in big corporations, in part because no one wants to be connected to a potential failure. And so, so incremental innovation tends to be the way that large corporations kind of move the needle, some of which I would not even call innovation, flavors, scents, things like that, but I, I call it the cinnamon factor. Let's, let's sprinkle a bit of cinnamon on this and call it innovation and we could charge a premium for it. Or, but, but if there's not a strategy over time, what, what happens to the, the, the longer term path of this, this brand or this proposition? The thing I often see on the agency side of the industry is too many agencies are placating the short-term desires of these clients. That, that the client provides an overly prescriptive brief 
where they've already presumed the answer and there's no curiosity to explore or learn about a, a real consumer frustration or need. And there's an unwillingness for that client to be, quote, wrong. They just want a somebody to, to salute, take the brief, and, and carry it forward. And, and every agency dreams of having the courage to be able to say, well, hold on, is this really the, 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 the core problem that we should be solving? And some, some firms and some agencies are spectacular at this. The vast majority, in my opinion, in my experience, are they, they don't want to upset the client. They don't want to lose the chance for a second or a third project, so they do whatever the client says. And, and this, this, this dance of, of short-term driving doesn't allow design to do what they do best, look into the future, advocate for the user or the, or the consumer, and really drive to solve a fundamental business challenge, and, and instead look at feeding their own machine with revenue, with utilization, with activity. And, and, and so per, perhaps I'm being a little bit uh, a little bit hard on the industry, but I, I think there's this opportunity for clients and agencies to think more holistically, more strategically, and more long-term for the impact of their brand and their purpose. And, and I don't think there's a function better suited than design to help drive that, that long-term proposition, that, that, that peak into the future, the horizon that's longer than most businesses are willing to look. Yeah, yeah. And you, you mentioned at the start, you know, that lots of corporations are reducing their internal design function. What do you think is driving that? And, and, and is it a cycle that you've seen before? It, 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 there, there is a cycle to it, Thomas. There, there's definitely a trend to bring more hands-on design activity inside of large companies. And, and I, I use my, my, my words very carefully here. They believe that it's faster and less expensive. And, and the challenge becomes the, the, the first one or two years that the company might choose to do that. They're hiring people from outside. They have a lot of great diverse experiences that are bringing amazing perspective into that company. But typically by year three, the company begins to, to look at this as an efficiency operation. Budgets get cut. We need to put more projects through this, this team. We're going to take a couple of heads out of the team. And, and so the, the, the purview of the organization begins to look more narrow, 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 so that the blinders and the aperture are looking straight ahead as opposed to looking around. And, and, and to me, the, the, the profound value that outside design consultancies and agencies bring is they have the experience from a vast number of categories, industries, perspectives, stages of business. And, and I think the thing that, that many agencies don't do well is they, they don't remind the client that that's a part of their brilliance. That they, instead, they take the brief, they provide a solution, and it's this magical thing, oh, look at how brilliant we are. But if I think they, if they were a little more deliberate to say, it was our automotive, our beauty and our tech experience that brought this thing together that, that we might not have otherwise come up with. It reminds the client that the reason you look outside is the diversity of that work and that experience. And, and again, I think that's the 
one of the opportunities for the industry is to actively be curious to look at places other than myself, other than my own category. And, and a, a couple of quick examples, financial services and healthcare. Those clients love to hire agencies that exclusively have experience in their respective industry sector, which is why every bank looks like every other bank and every health system looks like every other health system because they're not actively bringing in the perspective from other categories and sectors. What, what's more important to those clients is I don't want to have to pay this agency to learn my regulations. And they start with the constraint of the regulations. Then, then almost by definition, you're only going to get an incremental solution. Whereas if, if they were to hi actively hire agencies or outside consultants that have little or no experience in those categories, they might get a vastly different proposition. Yeah, interesting, yeah. And, and then sort of the counter to that argument also, or the support in the, maybe it's not really category, it's not really a category conversation, but the, the kind of long-term relationship with a, with an agency allows maybe to learn the category and learn the relationship, but learn a bit more trust and build a bit of foresight for, I imagine if, you know, if we were, if we were looking after a particular brand over a number of years, you would get used to the kind of things that they were looking out for or the things that they'd tried in the past. And, you know, you'd kind of be able to be, be able to help them with a kind of longer term view. And I, and I guess is the, is the, I guess the other part of the, the solution might be a mix, you know, not having a mix of agencies, you know, the, the kind of the, the reliable, trustworthy, long-term one and the kind of challenger agency that kind of prods and make sure, you know, that, 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 the, um, that they are seeing the opportunities. Is that fair? It, it, it's completely fair. And, and I think one of the things that, that a, a design firm needs to, to balance very delicately is the depth of knowledge that they pick up and gain for a over time for a long-term relationship. They know how the, the client thinks, they know how they operate and, and not, not getting too complacent and finding spaces to be able to push and poke and prod, which is the, the other solution that you offered is perhaps there's a mix of the long-term, uh, what I would call the safe set of hands that you can always go to. And then the provocateur, that, that can bring a new idea. But, but the, the, to me, the bigger challenge in, in the latter, Thomas, is that I, I, I often talk about this notion of reward stride behavior. And, and most corporations think of rewards as, as revenue, profit, or the individual thinks about it as bonus or title or promotion, things like that. But part of it, part of it also is, does, does somebody love a good needy challenge? Are they willing to be curious? And, and a lot of times the, the, the drive for short-term results and short-term activity is, is in direct conflict with the ability to be curious and explore and experiment. And, and so I think the, the, the challenge is what, what is that right mix for the culture, the DNA? If, if it's a client company that is unwilling to, to accept the ability to be wrong or the possibility of being wrong, then it would be a mistake to bring in a provocateur that's going to poke and prod because because there, there may be ego, there may be other things involved, or you know the the typical response I often hear for good quality design research and good quality design activity is oh we don't have time or budget to do that. 
and and that to to me it misses the opportunity to uh, uh, I often say to to slow down in order to speed up. Hey, can we can we really understand what the problem that we're trying to solve is? And and most corporations are trying to solve a profit problem or a revenue problem or or a market share problem, and to me those are symptoms of something else. Your your revenue's declining, not because your revenue's just simply declining. It's there's something that's not right in your market, your competitive your competitive set, your competitive advantage. Let's go try to uncover that. But most companies say, oh nope, short term. Oh, we're better off just dropping a propo- a promotion. Let's discount the thing for for the next month, and let's try to 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 influence sales financially instead of go to create a better a better mousetrap is as some say. Yeah. I think that was the, the last time we spoke. I think that was the thing that really helped me kind of um, articulate, you know, the advantage of engaging with an agency. And uh, you know, I think it's that um, as you mentioned, you know, there's lots of, lots of um, design buyers, marketeers, corporations out there that, yeah, that have billion dollar brands and understandably they're, their main their main challenge is not to mess it up not to you know not to go do something wrong so if they follow the usual marketing cycles the usual marketing tactics just tweak things and keep things ticking over you know their jobs are safe so it's quite it can be quite scary for 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 people to to think you know more broadly and and, and more laterally than 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 that on on some brands and it was our discussion and your experience of design thinking that kind of was really useful when we when we talked about slowing down to accelerate or slowing down to speed up. And I re- really like that idea that you know that that yeah, there's such a such a um, a pace to marketing activities, and there's sales cycles, there's retailer reviews, there's there's all these kind of targets to hit. So things get booked in, research gets booked in, the work has to catch up. So many times we've we've had to kind of do creative to, to, to fit with the, the research and you think actually if we just slow down uh, or, or just take a break from the the deadline at the moment and kind of ask the question the design thinking five whys you know why are we doing this what is the what is the problem we're trying to solve and maybe do a bit of deeper more in-depth diagnostic of the problem um, which feels like it's taking ages and we're getting nowhere and we've got nothing to show you know so all this thinking and talking but once that's complete you get to this you get to a useful effective solution much quicker so yeah i i, I really like that idea that you slow down it feels like you're slowing down at the start but it allows you to to go much faster at the end so so that's great um i understand you you know you do you you're a design thinker and and, and um run design thinking training and so forth would you like to talk about that i a bit? i do and and so i i think the, the the first thing i'll say is when i was introduced to design thinking in the role at, at p in png's design organization it it, it became clear to me how I how I ticked and what motivated me along the way because I I always had this desire to 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 see the world differently to to think about a a problem differently and 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 it rewarded me well but also along the way it confused a lot of people why are you doing that why are you saying that so design thinking gave me a personal framework to say oh this explains how I've been thinking about things. And I, 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 I'd like to think that I had kind of a natural empathy, human centricity. You know, what, why are we doing this? How is it helping the other party? 
whether it's personal relationships or professional relationships. And, and so, so one of the things I, I try to apply a, a, an informal design thinking framework to everything that I do, trying to understand my clients or prospects, what, what do they want to achieve from an engagement with me beyond what might be the deliverables? Because it may be, oh, I want to get promoted or I want this to look good or I want to reframe the, the practice of design in my company. And, and trying to get in and understand those also then helps to frame the appropriate problem. Because what I find, because I, I do play admittedly in a very narrow, unique niche in the industry, and it's and sometimes it's difficult for people to understand, well, how can you help me? What can you do? And so, so that problem definition stage of design thinking, of defining what it is we're trying to do, becomes critically important. And, and, it, and it also becomes the ability then to turn that around for them. What problem are they trying to solve in their organization? And, and so, so I, 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 I do, I, I teach a university level design thinking class. Uh, it's a super fast four day class. Day one is, is feed the framework to the students through a fire hose. So it's, it's super fast, super high level, focusing primarily on, on empathy and define because the rest of the process is, is more ubiquitous to a, a business problem solving, ideation, prototyping, and testing. And, and then I, I, we, we bring a brand partner in to, that provides a real business challenge. They often are skeptical too about what could they possibly get from four days with a group of students. And, and then I get the students in front of consumers. I arrange one consumer in-home visit based on the, the problem and the target consumer. And that I tell them is the fuel and inspiration for their idea. Don't share an idea that doesn't have a, a line of sight back to the consumer experience that you saw. And, and it's that advocacy for the consumer that I wanted that I want the students to be able to pull through. And 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 this is where the the slow down to speed up dynamic plays out, Thomas, is the the partner brands that that they they often think, well, wait, the students are only going to meet with one consumer. You know, we, we're never going to launch something based on one consumer. But, but the thing that I want to reintroduce to these corporations is one consumer data point could uncover something that you hadn't seen if you're really listening and watching. And of course, you wouldn't launch something based on that one, but it may uncover the idea to, to go dive deeper into something that you learn, as opposed to launching focus groups, which have extraordinary bias and, and impracticality, or even worse, surveys, you know, internet surveys and things like that, which you, you don't get the, the human side of that. And, and so it's, it's those things that, that drive how I engage with my, my clients and prospects, how I network with the industry, how I serve the, the DBA or, or other organizations is trying to get at that, that, that human centricity about what is it you're trying to achieve and putting your needs over mine. Yeah, fantastic. It's um, it's great to hear that, and I think you know one of the one of my objectives for this podcast is you know to communicate with all people in related to the industry, design buyers, design sellers, but particularly you know young creatives and people involved in in the in the activity of design and and, and on the selling side. You know, I I think it would be great for people to really understand 
the difference they make to corporations and 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 you know it's very hard to see the wood for the trees you are you and you you just think the way you do and you've always thought that way but but how is your way of thinking different to others and how can you express it so that they can understand the value that you bring and I, and I thought when we spoke previously you know design thinking and the consumer centric side of it is the same as good marketing practice market orientation and, and delivering the four p's but the design thinking side just focuses a little bit more on the on the on the emotive and empathetic side of what we're what we're understanding to start with the diagnostics the you know the the, the ethnographics and all that kind of side that that somehow creatives or people with creative training or people that spend a lot of time in creative environments and agencies are just able to access a bit more and then maybe able to express better you know obviously communication skills visual communication skills are a massive part of the design industry so you know if you're able to spot something and and communicate it effectively that's so important in the process and and not everyone's able to do that so that is you know one of the very valuable things that creators bring to the table and they they should remember that and you know people when people say you know why are you charging me for this why are we doing this process you know that's the value they bring so so it's, it's great to be able to to express that um, one, one build, uh, one build on thing, that, Thomas, yeah, is, is one, one of the things that I, I find is per, particularly in the imbalance of power, the, in the client agency relationship, both client and agency often perceive the client as having all the power because they have the money, they have the decision rights, they have those things, which makes it even more difficult for the consultant, the, 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 the contractor, the freelancer, the designer to push back. The other is, and, and perhaps I'm going to unfairly over-stereotype, designers tend to lean introvert, which means avoiding conflict, you know, trying to, you know, despite the fact that their inner soul wants to speak up. And one of the things I, one of the tricks I offer to design firms and designers is rather than sharing something that might be perceived as your opinion and your expertise, if you can point to something else or someone else, like the consumer, it makes it much easier to advocate because now it's not your opinion about what something should look like or how it should behave or how it should perform. It's the consumer told us that they want this. They told us that they that this is a super frustrating experience for them. And, and the more that the designer can advocate for that, 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 that user, it should make it easier for them to stand up to a powerful client to say, hold on, you know, I know you don't like purple and I know you want the logo to be bigger, but the consumer told us X, Y, and Z, and that's what we, we went to solve. And so it's a, it's a little bit of a, a, a you know, a, a Jedi mind trick to say, you know, it, it, I shouldn't feel nervous about sharing my quote opinion if I'm advocating for the people you, the brand, are trying to serve. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. And, you know, again, naturally, people I work with are observant, you know, I think, you know, and, and probably more so than than the average person. And, and that's, again, a skill, you know, your observation skills are are your one of your superpowers and, and being able to express your observations in the right way brings you power as well, doesn't it? You know, and, and like you say, yeah, do it through the eyes of the consumer, do it through the eyes of the the target for whatever the solution is that, that we're working on. So that's, that's great. Um, 
John, I thought I'd, I'd also mention that, you know, we, um, in planning this podcast, we, we, we noted that you, you have had a lot of conversations about the industry and you've got lots of data which you've shared on other platforms. There's another great podcast that you featured in recently called 20% and that's hosted by Blair Ends and Leah Powers. So uh, in that, you know, you, there's lots of data that you share about kind of the way agencies present the kind of you've got your your eight things that agencies always tend to um tend to refer to and there's this kind of piece in there about partnerships those are all great things i recommend our listeners listen to but i, I didn't want to cover them now and, and um, I, I want people to be aware that there's there's lots and lots of data that um john has got hold of and it's worth looking up and i'm sure he will uh uh you could look up that podcast or contact him directly. There's lots and lots of information there. So that's, so that's great. Thank you for that. And I'm sure Blair and Leah appreciate the plug as well. Yeah. Yeah. Podcast friends. Well, hopefully they'll, they'll promote me back. (laughs) Or promote us back. Yeah. Going back to the conversation about how brands, you know, maybe really focused on, on sort of a a certain schedule and, and a kind of timeline. The last time we spoke, it felt like there were kind of potentially two sides of the of the creative process or, or kind of two ends of the creative process that we could we could understand and i i thought maybe it could relate to some research which has been published by the ipa in terms of in terms of advertising and communication effectiveness and i'm sort of maybe borrowing and and kind of force fitting this but there's there's the kind of concept that in in marketing comms there's kind of a long term brand building process and there's kind of short term more response based marketing activity that that generally gets prioritized over the longer term brand stuff and it's more accessible do you think that we could almost relate our conversation to that you know that kind of billion dollar brand manager stuff you know it they don't want to mess it up so they just get on with the kind of tactical short term stuff but the long term stuff kind of can slip or, or be passed over and a good agency's responsibility is to be aware that both things need to be tackled you know to to respond to that short term stuff but allow yourselves or, or or try and create the opportunity to talk about the longer term brand building stuff and realize they are different. You know, you, you might have a, a particular client that does need that short-term stuff, acknowledge it, deliver it, but then take a breath and say, hey, now can we talk about, or oh, what are you doing about the long-term stuff? Have you got a solution for the long-term stuff? Uh, so, so Thomas, this this drops directly into the, this, this framework I often talk about is of rewards driving behavior. And, and so there, there are a number of things that, that come to mind when, when you talk about that. There is absolutely, in most large corporations, a priority of short-term over long-term. There is also an emerging priority over data and analytics, over emotion and, and passion for, for brands. But, but I, I think most of the people that are, that are listening to your podcast would 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 roll their eyes to say why aren't brands spending more time on the emotive side because that's where margin is that's where loyalty is that's where where disproportionate action and activity from a consumer is and and I think the the the, the driver is is the, the the famous Peter Drucker principle of what gets measured gets managed and if you can measure something so so marketing investment 
And, and most marketers now expect an immediate return or a very near-term return from what it is they're investing. And as a result, the longer-term brand building investments in brands often doesn't happen or is, is kind of neglected because it, it's difficult or impossible to assign an ROI to that. And, and, and great brands are doing both. Even though they might not, they might know they cannot deeply and accurately measure a return for the brand building side, they do it because they, they, they know if I'm in front of the consumer often enough or in a, in a memorable way enough, I will be top of mind when the consumer is ready to make a decision. But instead, I think the most companies prioritize efficiency over effectiveness, action and activity over good quality action and activity. And, and so the, the idea of rewarding action takes priority over longer term points of view. I, I can't tell you how many corporations that I've done some consulting work for that don't have a two or three year plan for their brand. And, and, and done, done well and done right, the short-term things should be a result of your long-term strategy, not, not a result of what's happening in the market today and I'm going to be reactive and, and agile and nimble and all those things. I, I should be strategically planning the arc of my brand and my business over time and fitting those increments in. And, and, and to me, uh, great examples of this are, again, reward stride behavior. Most junior to middle marketers are in their job for 18, 24 months. So, so they are likely not to spend money on a massive redesign for a brand because they don't want to be viewed as bad budget managers and they won't be on the desk by the time that finally hits the market. And so they're, they're more likely to err to short-term activities that can be measured and tracked. And so the more a, more a brand neglects that, 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 that um, you know, if you think about your, your, your car, every, every you know, 50,000 kilometers, every, every 20,000 miles, you, you, you go in and you have it serviced. If you're not doing that with your brand, it's suddenly five, 10 years from now, it doesn't look like the same brand. It doesn't hang together. They're there's different visual aspects, there's different technology aspects, and it confuse more likely to confuse the consumer. And, and so this idea of, of design and designers tend to have a longer horizon. If, if you think about the, the any, any brand that has had a graphic re, redesign and repositioning, it might be 200,000 pounds, it might be half a million, it might be a million. And, it, and it's a, an extraordinarily big financial bite to take while you're doing it. But done right, it shouldn't have to change for five or 10 or 20 years in the market. So now all of a sudden you divide it by the longevity and suddenly it's a great investment. But they, they don't think about that because the, the 80 million or $200 million advertising budget gets reset every year. And they, they're not thinking about half a million or a million over 10 years is, is one of the best investments they could make because it sets the foundation for what that brand stands for or, or an innovation pipeline. You know, what is it that I'm going to go disrupt in the future? Instead, the innovation organization often tends to have a technology pillar 
that is already locked in on some molecule technology widget that they've uncovered. And they're not thinking about what the consumer gets as a result of it. They're trying to force it into their products and brands and then back into the consumer story instead of, you know, the, the example I often use is, is if P&G had not been curious about a, what, what, what we, what we called snippets of time in the cleaning process, we likely would not have had Swiffer, a category redefining activity that, that created a whole new category of cleaning. This wasn't about the best cleaning process. It was about a good cleaning process that served my needs for those snippets of time in between activities to quickly dust something up or, and, and, you know, and, and that's, it, it's that kind of thinking that, that if P&G had pursued the, the, the chemical, the chemically preferred cleaning solution, they may never have, have had the, the, the aperture open enough to see the opportunity that Swiffer provided. Yeah created yeah fantastic john i'm aware of the time so i'm gonna um try and draw draw a close we'll move on to our sort of last section of questions but i thought that's great and thank you for that conversation and um you know i think the key takeout for me there is you know understanding how design design and design thinkers you know should remember the value of slowing things down inverted commas taking the time to really diagnose the problem. And as you said earlier, you know, that million pound uh, redesign, if it's done right once, you know, for a million pounds, it shouldn't need to be done again. But that million pounds is required to, to take the time to diagnose the problem properly and, and really get it right. So, you know, that having the confidence that, that, um, and, and to, to, to push for the value of, of that kind of work and, and, and seeing the value of, creatives and design in that is, is is really powerful so thanks john and there's uh there's many more conversations that i'm sure we could have and i'm sure i'm inviting people to contact you and, and pick it up and check out your uh your other writings and podcasts so there's lots of information there and obviously drop me drop us a line if if, if there's kind of things they want to pick up but yeah so 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 to close john our podcast is called demand more from design so we like to ask people if you could demand designers deliver a solution to any any problem and anything's possible what problem might you choose to solve i i think in line with the 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 passion that you shared earlier about my desire to to try to elevate design as a strategic business competence i think the first thing is to to encourage designers to learn the language of business because if you can articulate your problem and solution in the language and the KPIs, the, the, the rewards and measurement systems of your prospects and clients, they're more likely to understand it and they're more likely to see it. I think the other is on the corporate side, I'd love to see more curiosity, more vulnerability, more admission that something didn't work and then turn that into a learning opportunity. But instead, failure is a is a poison inside of most large corporations and no one wants to be attached to it. But, but the idea that, that I can learn more from mistakes than I can from successes. So why not embrace it? Why not, why not lean into it? And, and it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's, you know, Hey, we thought we read everything properly about this market, but then this happened. And, and so, so to me, it's, it's, it's that dynamic of both sides. Again, it's the empathy game. 
both sides trying to understand how the other can help and that the other, even if they may have a, an opposing point of view or an unpopular point of view, they, they still have the client or the agency's best interest in, at, at heart as they try to, to, to navigate through that. So, so to me, that's, that's the big thing in the context of, of the kind of the intersection of my sweet spot. And, and I, I think the, the, the opportunity for curiosity is something that, that you know, we're, we're all under this pressure for limited time and limited opportunity. But the opportunity to, to learn from something else, whether it's a podcast or a book or somebody else's point of view, you know, here in the U.S., we've become incredibly polarized. The U.K., not, not too far behind, I think. And, and just the ability to listen to any anybody's perspective. Why do you think that? You know, what 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 information do you have that I don't that might cause me to change the way I think? And then if you drill that down into the business side is is, you know, the the, the empathy thing, Thomas, I often see is is when I talk to clients, many of them say, Oh, we've got empathy nailed. We do this for the consumer, we this, that, and the other, but man. I really hate John over there in supply chain. He's a barrier to to me getting my work done. And and so empathy seems to be a conditional or or only external consideration instead of well why wouldn't you understand what John's trying to achieve? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. No, it's good advice, and for 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 our for our working day and probably yeah beyond that as well. So thanks John. Last couple of questions. Um do you have a kind of a, a best piece of advice you share or you uh, received or a particular motto maybe that you go? Well, by, one of the things that that's a a personal pursuit of mine. So I'm I'm a I'm an active learner and an active networker and connector. And and part of that is is it helps me keep my aperture wide open so that I'm seeing more hopefully seeing more things as they're passing across my eyes. And in the in the mantra that I often share is you've got to collect the dots before you can connect the dots. So it's this this natural curiosity I have. And, and so so the thing I I often share with people and that when they say, hey, who do you want to talk to? I, I say, if you know an interesting person with an interesting journey, I accept the fact that the that most people I talk to will never ever become a client of mine. But I might learn from their journey. I might see a connection because I am talking to people that aren't squarely in my my lane, if you will, to, to, to be a connector for people. I've, I've connected people that, that are now creating inspiration systems for people in, in prisons so that when they get out, they, they might have a, a higher chance of, of success when they get out because I happened to talk to three people that, that, that were un, unconnectedly working in, in separate prison systems for these things. And now they're, they're together working on content to, to share with more, more of those things. And that never would have happened had the, 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 one of my friends said, John, would you be interested in talking to the janitor at my kid's school? And, and, you know, ordinarily he said, you know, ordinarily I'd say janitor, you know, there's no reason that John and I said, interesting journey, interesting person I'm in. And, and that led to the ability to connect these three people together. Yeah, great advice actually, and I think that's something I've learned over my career is is to is to lean into those conversations and opportunities. And as you said earlier, you know, often creatives are on the sort of introvert end of the scale, and it is hard to you know to force yourself into those conversations. But they're always productive, aren't they? You know, it, it's either 
it, nothing else than just practicing your own skills but you know you might find some insights make a connection bank it for later you know it's always a good thing to do great uh, and then last but not least john um it's interesting to know if you're reading anything, listening to anything, watching anything you might recommend or or kind of projects you're involved in, you know, what, what would be your uh, recommendation to our listeners to do next or to, to, to tune into next or watch out for next? Um, so, so from a, a listening perspective, you, you mentioned one of the podcasts, not just because I happen to be a guest, but the, the topic area intrigues me is the 20% uh, marketing procurement podcast. The other is another one that, that Blair Enns does with David Baker uh, called Two Bobs, primarily focused on helping agencies or providers of services think better about their clients and their own business. And, and, and then there's, you know, food podcasts. Um, I, I was listening to one on a, a as, as my wife and I were driving out of town this weekend, just on the, the history and chemistry and science of eggs, which to me, it was fascinating about the the the, the purpose of uh, and how they became what they became, and I still don't think they answered the which came first, chicken or the egg. But uh, but but one person said the the, uh, the the chicken did because it evolved from other things that then reptiles laid eggs and things. But anyway, so I'm I'm more of an active doer listener kind of activity, and so so love the idea of of being a connector. And, and connecting people. And then, and I look for recommendations for books all the time and I, I can never remember them when people ask. So I, I've, I've got a running list of, of those kinds of things, but, but some of them are, are kind of good old fashioned, the, uh, the innovators dilemma, uh, the, the, the ones from IDEO and Tim Brown, the, the, the 10 faces of innovation, just, just kind of getting into the idea of again rewards drive behavior. The, the the finance people, the marketers, the junior, the senior. You know who's trying to appease whom. Fantastic. Well, John, thank you. Our time is up, I'm afraid. So it's been great to talk to you. And all those mentions we've made, we'll uh, put links in the in the conversation. Sorry, links in the show notes, so people can look those up. And obviously, links to to yourself at a at a better view. And yeah, thank you so much for your time, uh, John. We'll keep in touch. We'll um, wish you well. Uh, Honoured to be invited and delighted to share. Thanks, Thomas. You have been listening to Every Dimension, brought to you by PATH. Join in the conversation on LinkedIn using the hashtag Every Dimension or on Instagram at WeArePath. For more information on how we design brands better in every dimension, please visit wearepath.com forward slash every dimension. Here you'll find all our other podcasts and 20 years of experience helping brands diagnose opportunities and challenges, then designing identity, experience and innovation to deliver on them. This podcast is created and produced by PATH. If you have enjoyed this podcast, why not leave us a review on Spotify or iTunes? Thank you.